Welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. We have two huge stories for you tonight, although one of them clearly more significant than the other. Unlike the BBC Bulletin today, we aren't going to start with the row between the Royals and the BBC, although we are going to cover that. We're going to start with the much more significant story of the day, which is the ceasefire in Gaza. Obviously, uh, an enormous relief that those airstrikes in Gaza are going to stop, but... This is not the end of the occupation nor apartheid, and it is not the introduction of, of peace, essentially, is it? We're going to be talking about that. I've got a great guest. I'm also joined tonight by Navarra Media's royal correspondent, Ash Sarkar. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm out of breath because I literally ran from a train that was three hours late and sat outside Milton Keynes for like an hour and a half to be here. You know, the Queen threw everything she had at me to try and stop me from telling you the truth about the royals, but... Not even the monarchy could get in my way. <laughs> That's what we like to hear. And I'm sure our audience will be very, very appreciative of you of you making um, that sprint home. At 2 a.m. on Friday morning local time, a ceasefire brokered between Israel and Hamas came into force. By then, Israel's bombardment of Gaza had killed 243 people, including 66 children over that same period, Hamas rockets killed 12 people in Israel. These were the celebrations in Gaza City last night. Some chants you would have heard there. God is greatest and greetings to Is al-Din al-Qassam brigades. Now the al-Qassam brigades are the military wing of Hamas. Um, at lots of the, the celebrations today, there were people chanting about Hamas. One of the, the big stories from this past 11 days is that they have increased their stature in Palestine. We'll be talking about that in one moment. There were, of course, also celebrations at Al-Aqsa Mosque in East Jerusalem. However, already by today, Israeli police had once again stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. Now, if you want to know the significance of that storming, remember that it was the storming of Al-Aqsa Mosque that originally provoked rocket fire from Hamas. It's the most symbolic place in Palestine and the third holiest site in Islam. There were some differences. The, the actions that provoked the rocket strikes, the police went actually inside the building. This time around, they stayed outside, but still a very, very provocative action to take immediately after a ceasefire was called. I'm joined now by Mohammed Al-Safin, a senior producer at AJ+. Thank you so much for, for joining us this evening. Can I start by asking you, has anyone gained anything from this 11-day war? Obviously, there's been uh, an enormous human cost, in particular for the people of Gaza. But coming out of this 11-day war, are there any forces in, in Israel and Palestine who feel like this went well for us? We, we come out of this stronger than we went in. It's difficult. You look at Gaza and you see the amount of destruction that the Israeli military wrought on Gaza with U.S. and European support. Um, and it's difficult to say that anyone came out of that with any gains. The thing to remember is when uh, colonized people fight back, the measure of what the success is and isn't is, is going to be a bit different. right? And the reason you're seeing so much celebration in Gaza after 11 days of the world seeing this un unimaginable destruction rain down on their heads is uh, people feel like they've they've survived, right? They've survived, they've stayed resilient against an enemy that in the past has literally ethnically cleansed them from their homes, right? 80% of Gaza's 2 million people are refugees. They're not refugees from some faraway land. They're refugees from towns and villages that they can literally walk to if they could beyond, you know, Israeli military checkpoints and border wall around Gaza. There's generations of trauma here and there's generations of... Um, yearning to return to these homes. So Israel in the past has succeeded in completely you know, destroying these homes, destroying these villages and forcing these people out. The fact that Israel is you know, able to pound them over and over and over again, backed by the US empire and backed by the European Union, and yet these people stay resilient and these people kind of continue to fight back despite the huge disparity in power. Uh, that's what people are celebrating. On the Israeli side, 
There's a lot of talk about, you know, the optics of this for Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And I think that tells you all you need to know. In Israel, you know, the, 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 the talk in Israel is much more concerned with how this lines up for the next Israeli government versus the physical destruction that we've seen in Gaza. Were there any conditions on the ceasefire, as far as you understand? I mean, I know it's, it's, it's officially an unconditional ceasefire. It's disputed now because Hamas are saying they received guarantees that Israel would remove, um, I quote, its hand from Sheikh Jarrah and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, Israel are saying, absolutely not. This was just an unconditional ceasefire. We haven't made any concessions whatsoever. Um, do you have any understanding of which one of those is closer to, to the truth or what's going on there? No, I mean, in previous rounds of fighting, the ceasefires, there's never ever been clarity. You've, on the Palestinian side, there's always been um, insistence that there were some demands in the past. It was to loosen the blockade on Gaza um, and allow people to, to live more freely. Um, and usually Israel would kind of loosen the screws a bit before tightening them again. What's interesting is that, you know, whether or not this was a term for, for the ceasefires that was agreed to or not, the fact that Hamas is talking from Gaza about conditions in Jerusalem rather than Gaza, I think is very telling. I mean, there's, for the first time, I think, in, in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, and in, in you know, other parts of, of Palestine, including um, what we call Israel proper, that's the where one and a half million Palestinian citizens of Israel live. There's a sense that Palestinians have a force that's willing to fight for them wherever they are. Um, again, a huge disparity in power that we see. Um, but we have to remember this is a, a fight against uh, ethnic cleansing and colonialism. Um, so to go back to your question, unsure of what the terms for the, for the ceasefire were. Um, but it's interesting that Hamas has put up these, these demands, which I think um, are relatively reasonable to stop the ethnic cleansing in Sheikh Jarrah um, and stop storming the Al-Aqsa Mosque. We've spoken with people in, in the West Bank, in Jerusalem, in Gaza over the past couple of weeks, and indeed diaspora Palestinians. And one of the common threads is that over the past two weeks, there's been a sort of level of, of unity among mm. Palestinians, which hasn't been seen for a while. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you have any idea of where you think that might go next. There's definitely a sense of unity and optimism that I don't remember feeling in my lifetime amongst Palestinians. And I think the biggest draw of that isn't in the West Bank and Gaza, but inside Israel itself, where one and a half million Palestinians who live legally as second or third class citizens, according to this, the laws of the state of Israel, there was an uprising. And that has never happened before in the entire history of the state, where that group of Palestinians um, that, you know, the Israeli establishment has kind of convinced themselves have been cowed and, uh, you know, don't identify as Palestinians. The official Israeli discourse doesn't refer to them as Palestinians, they refer to them as Arabs, kind of like identity-free, generic Arabs living in, in Israel. We saw, you know, police stations all over these towns and villages burnt Israeli police stations. We saw the Palestinian flag raised everywhere. We saw direct confrontation with Israeli police. For the first time ever, the Israeli, you know, the Israeli government sent the border police, which is used to guard the occupation in the West Bank or to enforce the occupation in the West Bank, sent it into Palestinian cities inside Israel. So the city of Lid, um, which had an uprising, which for two nights, the mayor of Lid, the Israeli Jewish mayor of Lid said they had lost control of the town. Um, they sent you know, six battalions of Israeli border police from the occupied West Bank into, into Lid. Um, so beyond that, there was a general strike earlier this week that was observed by everyone um, in Gaza, the West Bank, Jerusalem, and in 1948, Palestine. Um, and, and that's also unprecedented. Unpre so that sense of unity is, you know, we'll see where that goes, but definitely something that hasn't happened before did happen over the last week. If you see something that hasn't happened before, that is, of course, a reason for, for hope. If you're seeing a unity sure. among Palestinians, both inside historic Palestine and, and in diaspora communities, that's, that's something that, that opens up opportunities. At the same time, we're in exactly the same situation as before, which is you've got one power with overwhelming mm -hmm. force, which seems mm -hmm. to be backed basically unconditionally by the, the world's superpower, which is the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, as much as we look at these signs of hope, basically Netanyahu or whoever replaces him, if there's another general election, they're not going to be in a mood to make any concessions. And as far as Israel's concerned, they're going to still be fairly comfortable. They can continue as, as normal. Is, is, do you think that's a fair assessment or do you think there are you know, cracks in the, the hegemony of, of Israel in the region? No, I think it's a fair assessment uh, in the region itself. 
But you touch on an important point, which is that Israel is backed by the United States. It's its military guarantor. It gives it diplomatic cover. I mean, over the course of this mini conflict in Gaza, the United Nations Security Council tried four times to release a resolution um, calling for a ceasefire and was blocked every single time by the U.S. Where every other member was for the ceasefire and the U.S. opposed it. Um, so the cracks I'm beginning to see are in the U.S., this is, I don't think we're going to see any huge changes anytime soon, but for the first time, you have members of Congress um, calling Israel an apartheid state on the floor of Congress, talking about colonialism, the need to defund the occupation, and the need to uh, limit the sales of weaponry to Gaza, uh, to, to Israel, sorry. You know, short term, nothing is going to change today or tomorrow, but we're on a trajectory that will be interesting to look at. Well, in terms of the international picture, there was another... Um, line that was coming out from from Hamas, which you know I, I didn't quite understand the background for. So I'm hoping you're going to be able to help me. So uh, they were saying, or they were claiming that one consequence of this 11 day war is that it will put an end to the process of normalization between some of the mm. Arab states and and Israel. Mm. Um, is it, does that ring true to you? And why would that be? Why would this why would this 11 day conflict have have stopped that move towards normalization by some of the Arab Gulf states and and Israel? We have to go back to the context in which the normalization deals were made with these Arab countries. And that was under the Trump administration, where for years, the Israelis, the Israeli right wing, especially, which is actually the Israeli mainstream today, the Israelis, the Americans under Trump and some of the Gulf Arabs have decided that, had decided that the Palestinian cause was 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 now no longer relevant and that the Palestinians had been cowed. They, they were disunited, uh, divided amongst factions, divided geographically. And th th it wasn't a hot conflict anymore. There's no reason for Arab states not to normalize with Israel and accept it as part of the region. I think what Hamas is maybe hoping for with this is popular pressure on some of these governments to see, you know, especially what Israel has done in Sheikh Jarrah, what it's done in Jerusalem, and what it's done in Gaza over the last week, to just kind of recalibrate that that the way Israel is seen by people in the region. It's it's tough to say that you have to remember all of these countries the Gulf Arab countries making normalization deals with Israel are, are autocracies. So it's, it's difficult to see how much they actually would respond to popular pressure. Yeah, absolutely. The idea that now it's an issue, so they're going to have to listen, might not apply in, in, in yeah. those particular um, states. Um, finally, I want to talk about what would be the way forward from this position. And here I'm thinking about the, the, the Labour Party in the UK or most sort mm. of like liberal mainstream politicians. What they say at this point is the ceasefire is over. Now let's reboot the peace process. Let, let's restart negotiations for a two-state solution. The way that's often responded to is like, look, you're living in the past. The peace process has been dead for decades. A two-state solution mm. is now implausible out of the question. Mm. So I don't know where you stand on that and also what you think the demands of you know people who support Palestine in the international community should be what you imagine people in Palestine will be demanding for themselves. What if we're going to be hopeful? What are the next steps? The idea of a two-state solution for those unfamiliar was to divide the land, right? You had so you'd have Israel and then you'd have the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza making their own state over there. The problem is ever since these that process began in the early nineties, talking thirty years now. Israel has continued to eat into that land. So uh, when when you know when negotiations began about creating a Palestinian state in the West Bank, there were two hundred thousand Israeli settlers living there. Today, there's more than six hundred thousand Israeli settlers. One in ten Israeli Jews live on the land that you know the international community says will become an, a Palestinian state eventually. The Israelis themselves have given up that pretense. We saw you know during the Trump administration, um, the Israelis were very close to formally annexing most of the West Bank into Israel and leaving behind kind of several densely populated Palestinian urban centers to kind of administer themselves while taking all the land around. If you look at a map of the West Bank now with the settlements that are on there, the settler-only roads, the Israeli military infrastructure in the West Bank, 60% of it is completely off limits to Palestinians. Only 12% of it is under nominal Palestinian authority. Um, and even that 12% you know, sees daily Israeli military incursions in there um, and is not allowed to grow. grow. There's, no, there's no natural growth for that land. So in terms of just the geography, the idea of a two-state solution is, is virtually impossible. And I think most people have given up on that now. The Israelis themselves are talking about just you know, annexing the land and taking, it, uh, and taking it and laying the Palestinians in the 
remaining cantons deal with with themselves. So um, looking forward, uh, I think there's there's calls now. There's there's the idea that the way forward isn't to focus on dividing the land, but on creating some kind of system that replaces the current one, where the current one is, as Human Rights Watch just displayed, is apartheid. Right? There's a, there's a formalized system of apartheid. There's a formalized system of discrimination. The call, I think, for many people going forward is to end that and replace it with a system that guarantees equality and freedom to everyone living on that territory. Uh, Mohammed Al Safin, thank you so much for for joining us this evening. We really do appreciate it. Thank you, guys. I want to bring Ash in to talk a bit about how this conflict's been covered in in the UK this time around, and if you think that essentially, you know, now the ceasefire has been called. Once again, we won't hear about the oppression of the Palestinians in in the British media. Do you think that now they'll think, you know, job done, essentially, it's over, we don't need to hear from Jeremy Bowen in Jerusalem anymore? We do have a media culture which seeks to normalise the oppressive activities of the Israeli state as much as it can. So during these periodic uh, bloodbaths, which spring up every few years. We know that there are figures within uh, Israeli government and defense circles who refer to the occasional bombardment of Gaza as mowing the grass. So it's that image of regularity, um, of you know asserting a particularly violent kind of authority, is that when those things happen, there are attempts to weave a narrative of both sides to cover the conflict only when you see um, signs of Palestinian resistance, some of which is violent, and to, as soon as there is a ceasefire, start talking about a peace process which hasn't existed in any meaningful sense for decades and a two-state solution which the most powerful party involved has absolutely no interest in pursuing. So that's the bedrock of British media coverage. And I've got no doubt that that's the norm that it will revert to. But here are some of the things which are different this time around in terms of how uh, the bombardment of Gaza and the ethnic cleansing in Sheikh Jarrah and the apartheid conditions uh, between the river and the sea overall have been understood by, I think, certain demographics within Britain uh, and also the U.S., I think that one of the really important things that's happened to political culture is Black Lives Matter, because I think it did two things. The first thing is it really did popularize and entrench a certain understanding of asymmetric violence where the more violent party is the state. Right. That is the kind of central narrative of Black Lives Matter. And particularly after the murder of George Floyd, it is something which I think has really um, asserted a kind of cultural dominance if it's not been reflected in politics proper as much as we would perhaps like to. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that the way in which images from Gaza and from Sheikh Jarrah and, you know, from Lod have been distributed, again, it's very, very similar to the kind of ecology of images that people have become used to seeing through Black Lives Matter. So you do have, I think, a bit of a generational shifting of the dial and politicization with regards to this issue and the need to express solidarity with the Palestinian people in resisting their own oppression. And I think that Black Lives Matter was such a huge part of that. And I'm curious to see whether that will remain, whether it will have some resilience and robustness, or if it will fall victim to the kind of, you know, very short term memory that can happen on social media. So I think that's something to really look out for. I think also the third thing is that it's become visible in new spaces. So footballers bring out the Palestinian flag uh, from the Leicester players who brought out the flag uh, when they won the FA Cup at Wembley to Pogba and Diallo being handed a flag by spectators in the terrace and, you know, displaying it around the pitch. Again, those are images of solidarity coming from really the heart of where the national culture is. And I think that that kind of media veil of silence, that complicity in acts of Israeli state violence will become harder to maintain because of that general sh- generational shift and because of where it's happening in the culture.
Let's hope so. The next story, we're going to see something that will hopefully provoke some of that pushback you're talking about. One thing that enables the continuation of Israeli occupation and apartheid is an unwillingness on the part of most Western media to call it out for what it is. That's why some people thought Israel's bombing of the Associated Press offices could have been such a mistake. Could a news organization which had its offices destroyed really go on to cover for the Israeli government and to present the occupation of Palestine as an even fight between two sides? Or would they grow some balls? Would, would the fact that, they, that their offices have literally been bombed by the aggressor, by the occupying force, mean that they start to cover this, this, um, this occupation not just as a oh, passive voice, something was bombed, passive voice, someone was shot, passive voice, um, you know, deaths were caused without ever really naming what's going on. Well, the evidence is in, and it turns out that Israel can do pretty much whatever they want and still have the Western press defend them. That's because one of the first actions AP has taken since that bombing of their own offices is to fire a journalist for past comments criticizing Israel. This is Emily Wilder. She is Jewish and was hired by Associated Press on the 3rd of May. 16 days later, she had her job terminated after being told she had violated AP's social media policy. And according to the Washington Post, who spoke to Wilder, she has still not been told why. So the Washington Post report. Wilder was not told which of her social media posts had violated the company policy, she said. Just that, quote, I had showed clear bias, unquote. A spokesperson for the wire service confirmed that, quote, she was dismissed for violations of AP's social media policy during her time at AP. So what had Wilder tweeted during her time at AP to get her fired? Now, remember, she'd only been there for 16 days, so it's quite easy to look. You don't have to trawl through much Twitter history. I did that today. Um, none of it struck me as particularly controversial. In fact, it's mainly retweets. Um, some of it is criticizing the media coverage of Israel's war on Palestine. We can look at some of those retweets now. You can see which of those you think got this journalist fired from Associated Press. Um, so one of the retweets, uh, this was very shared, actually. It's showing you how a New York Times abstract was edited um, over the course of about 24 hours. And you can see from this, the original headline, police entered the compound and fired rubber-tipped bullets. Anger was already building in response to looming expulsion of several Palestinian families from their homes in the city. Becomes, over, over the course of 24 hours, Gaza militants fired rockets towards Jerusalem and the Israeli police fought with Palestinian protesters in an escalation of violence after a week of increasing tension. So you can see you've got an original headline which is showing that Israel is the aggressor and then suddenly it changes um, to the Palestinians are the aggressor. Um, I do recommend following that Twitter account because it is always very interesting to see how those abstracts change. Another retweet was from an Al Jazeera producer. Um, this said, if you're reporting on Israel-Palestine, looks like a ping pong game. This happened on the Israeli side, then this happened on the Palestinian side. With zero context analysis, history or bigger picture, then it's bad journalism and you are doing your audience a disservice. That was another um, retweet which was criticizing the media's coverage of Israel and Palestine. Now, the spiciest tweet that she wrote herself, which I presume lost her the job with AP, um, was the following. Objectivity feels fickle when the basic terms we use to report news implicitly stake a claim. Using Israel but never Palestine, or war but not siege and occupation are political choices, yet media make those exact choices all the time without being flagged as biased. Now that tweet was sent on May the 17th, two days before she lost her job. Now, in case you want to, you know, how could a tweet that anodyne get you fired from a job at the Associated Press? Well, the background here is it seems that the firing was a result of a right-wing campaign. So a right-wing online campaign who took issue with the fact that when a student at Stanford University, Wilder had been an active member of the group's Jewish Voice for Peace and Students for Justice in Palestine. We can go back to the Washington Post Again, So they write, on May 18th, the Stamford College Republicans flagged a post that Wilder made in college, characterizing her as an anti-Israel agitator and criticizing the Associated Press for hiring her. 
in the old post, Wilder described Sheldon Adelson, the late Las Vegas businessman and staunch Israel supporter, as a naked mole rat looking billionaire. In subsequent days, conservative outlets, including The Federalist, Washington Free Beacon, and the website of Fox News, published stories calling out the wire service for Wilder's hiring and attempting to tie it to the Israel Army's recent destruction of the Associated Press's Gaza Bureau. The wire service said it was unaware of Hamas's presence in the building. It goes on to say, Wilder believed the Associated Press acted in response to those high-profile pieces of criticism. She was told she said that a review of her social media activity was initiated by the Associated Press after her old post had been publicised. Ash, I want your thoughts on this. So, In the past week, Associated Press have literally had their offices bombed by Israel and also fired someone for what to me looks like, I mean, a correct tweet, actually, to talk about how the mainstream media covers Israel and Palestine can have political implications. She's lost her job. What do you make of this? I think this demonstrates everything which is cowardly, craven and self-serving in our industry. And I really cannot um, over-egg my criticism of the Associated Press press in this matter. Um, Firstly, it is a terrible, terrible precedent to set that somebody cannot enter journalism if they have ever been politically active. That is a terrible precedent to set because then what you're asking of people is to not cultivate an active interest in the world around them and to only go into journalism, not if they're interested in social matters, politics, the economy, but because they want to become famous and because they want to make lots of money by climbing to the top of the tree. All right. So that is a terrible model to set in journalism. Secondly, it is not an expectation which is evenly applied. And Asted Herndon, who works for the, uh, the New York Times, said this very well, which is there is an entire subgroup of journalists who have entered the industry because they started out as right wing hyper-partisan hacks hacks and opinion writers. And then they've made the journey into the establishment media, whether that's uh, the NYT or something more like the Associated Press or the Washington Post, precisely because their presence indicates diversity of opinion. So this is one of the things that the free speech wars and the cancel culture moral panic has done. It has forced establishment media outlets into having to make these quite high profile hires of right wing firebrands in order to prove that they're not biased, except that doesn't go the other way. And I'll tell you a little story about this. Um, Michael, I was supposed to uh, do a column for an international uh, news magazine, which shall remain nameless, but it does publish both in Britain and America. And I was uh, tapped up. Uh, They were in the middle of sorting out my contract. And then a new, more right-wing opinion editor came in and gutted me, got rid of me, said too left-wing, too biased, couldn't possibly. But at the same time, I looked and they were snapping up every single right-wing firebrand they could. So that demonstrated diversity of opinion. That di- that demonstrated um, not being pressured by, uh, you know, the kind of moral outrage on Twitter and cancel culture. But me, I was a step too far. So we know that there are differences in terms of how being perceived on the left is treated in terms of bias and, you know, not being objective and not being um, impartial enough and how people on the right are treated in the media that's endemic. And then you've got the specific issues to do with Israel and Palestine. So one, she was completely right. Emily Wilder was completely right that more often than not, you don't even hear the word Palestine. And that is an active political choice. You know, you think about where the discourse is here in the UK, in America, because of those close geopolitical ties between America and Israel, it is 
even worse. It is even worse. The lack of recognition, the lack of reality in American media about the nature of the occupation and the nature of the ethnic cleansing, I think is, is to an extent that we can't even imagine. So for, you know, Emily Wilde to say something which is so completely anodyne, it does actually stick out in that context because it is so much worse. And I think that that's the thing that we need to recognize is that this absolutely is not an anti-Semitic, conspiratorial, ooh, there's the Israel lobby. It's not that. What there is is a geopolitical closeness between America and Israel. And actually, if you want to talk about outsized influence on politics, you can talk about America's outsized influence on Israeli politics. But what that means is a particular cowardice and a particular bias running through establishment media outlets, which makes them particularly vulnerable to right-wing attacks on the basis of not being sufficiently pro-Israel or on the basis of being suspiciously progressive or suspiciously left-wing. I mean, I would say I, I don't think talk about talking about an Israel lobby is always anti-Semitic. Sometimes it can bleed into it, of course. I guess what I'm saying is that that's not always. I think people sometimes have in their heads, you know, in The Simpsons, where they've got that, you know, send up of the Republican Party and it's in Mr. Burns' mm. mansion and they're like, gentlemen, too evil. And then people have that idea of like, that is how it works. I think that in terms of biases and in terms of, you know, prejudicial treatment, it's actually a lot more nebulous and a lot more subtle. It doesn't have to be a conspiracy for it to be um, the result of lobbying, pressure, and also um, that kind of cultural structure you get around um, how America views and talks about her allies. No, I think that's a very important point to make. One more element of this story, which I do find is so chilling. I've mentioned it already, but I want to you know, really emphasize this, which is that AP, Associated Press, will not tell the person they've just fired what tweet they're firing her for. It's really, really remarkable. So Emily Wilder, we, we, we've uh, read to you before the Washington Post, she also spoke to SF Gate after the firing and said, they told me that I violated their social media policy and would be terminated immediately. But they never said which tweet or post violated the policy. I asked them, please tell me what violated the policy. And they said, no. So this is this is extraordinary because one, I mean, I don't know how you justify it. And I don't know how you justify not telling her what the post was, right? You know, if you believe in the professional development, you know, you can say, uh, you know, the most sympathetic um, explanation we can possibly have of this is that Associated Press, you know, they're not they're not politically motivated. They just say, look, because we're the Associated Press, it's a bit like the BBC, we have to hold ourselves to a standard of impartiality, which is higher than anyone else at all. Um, and this junior journalist, remember, she was entry level, essentially, she'd only been there for 16 days. Um, they could have said, look, um, we're, we're sorry, this tweet was was kind of fell foul of that. You know, you should take a lesson here, which is that if you want to work for something like AP or Reuters or BBC, you're going to have to be super, super careful. Now, that would require them to tell her what rule she broke and how. They've done the precise opposite, which is to say, we're firing you, but you're going to have to guess why. The sympathetic explanation falls apart because if they were doing this to say, you know, you might be a good journalist, but it just hasn't worked out to do it. we're going to help you grow. It doesn't work because they haven't told her. The explanation of this, which is more sinister, is that they got rid of her without really any objective justification for political reasons. And they don't want to tell her precisely what tweet it is because they don't want to have to justify their decision. Because obviously, if they say this is the tweet we fired you for, then they have got to stand up and say, yes, we think this tweet is a fireable offense because X, Y, Z. They're not telling her why they fired her, so they don't have to explain it. So it is, it's basically them saying, we are making this decision, but we have absolutely no confidence whatsoever that we can back it up, which is terrible. It's also worth noting this journalist has been made unemployed. She doesn't have a job now. Let's go back to the SF gate for another quote from her. She says, it's devastating, of course. I love journalism. And part of what I think makes me such a capable, powerful journalist is how much I care about the people I write about, particularly the marginalized. That's why I joined the Associated Press and they saw me as capable. This is, of course, a really hard situation. And I'm not sure what's going to happen next. Now, Ash, I want to bring you in one last time on this story, because I feel like, you know, the real danger here is not so much. Well, I mean, it partly is. It could be that there's a purge now of progressive journalists from from companies such as Associated Press. Probably more likely is that anyone who works for a company like the Associated Press is going to be terrified of saying even very, very, you know, tepid 
things um, about global conflicts. Also, the implication here is in, in much of the write-ups is that one of the reasons she is being kicked out from this job is because of her past political commitment. So w- we might have lots of people absolutely self-censoring at fear of of ending up the subject of a right-wing mob and then getting getting fired. How, how big a worry do you think it is that people are just going to bite their tongue when it comes to issues like this? I think when it comes to self-censorship in this matter, that is, of course, a huge issue because what we've seen here is the success of right-wing cancel culture. Because once you have it essentially as a precedent that you can get a journalist fired because of them retweeting uh, material, which essentially acknowledges Palestinians as human, and that's about it. Well, how many other journalists are going to be in the firing line? You're going to end up with an incredibly homogenous and also a, you know, homogeneously pro-Israel journalistic culture. That is not something which is good uh, for the industry at all. I think also the second thing, and this is also something uh, to worry about a bit, is what this is going to do overall in terms of making people feel that there aren't trusted shared sources of information. Because it's not just this one journalist who's affected by her being fired, although, of course, she's you know the worst affected by it. It's also all those people who w- would think that, you know, well, there are problems with the establishment media, you know, problems with The Guardian, or there are problems with the NYT, or there's problems with AP. Um, but ultimately, um, I rely on them because they're a trustworthy, uh, accredited source of information. The more you get this kind of pandering to a right-wing outrage mob, the more you break down that shared space where we come together, we consume information, we make sense of it, and that is part of what um, drives politics, the idea of shared conversational space. And I think that this kind of panicky action by a media outlet, which has just had its offices bombed, right, a war crime uh, by the IDF um, is awful. It's unjustifiable. Oh, sorry. And there's one last thing that I want to say, Michael. And that is the irony that there is no one in the industry of journalism who is more venerated more worshipped than George Orwell, right? You've got the statue of George Orwell outside the BBC, all of these free speech, uh, you know, evangelists and anti-cancel culture types um, would profess to, you know, lionise George Orwell. And within that, George Orwell being this almost secular saint for the industry of journalism, what's erased is that he was an active part in political movements during the Spanish Civil War. Um, and even when he came back to this country, he was shopping communists to MI5, which I would not recommend. Um, but he was an active political player. And yet he's been stripped out of all of that to be turned into this almost completely um, bloodless symbol of elite journalistic interests. And I just think there's a certain irony there. George Orwell would be rolling in his grave if he could see what happened to Emily Wilder. Absolutely. Let's go on to our next story. We're going into the beef between the royals and the BBC. Martin Bashir's 1995 interview with Princess Diana was hailed as the scoop of the century. And even people who were too young to remember watching the original show, I include myself in in that category, most of you will likely have come across this particular clip. Do you think Mrs Parker Bowles was a factor in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. (laughs) Probably one of the most famous lines ever aired on the BBC. However... That interview, once hailed as the BBC at its best, is 25 years on, creating quite a crisis for the public broadcaster. That's because in a new official report, the judge Lord Dyson has found that Martin Bashir, who conducted the interview, had used deception to secure the interview with Princess Diana. Now, the deception included showing Earl Spencer, that's Princess Diana's brother, forged bank statements which purported to show payments were being made by newspapers to former members of his staff. He also forged documents which suggested Diana's staff were selling stories about her to the press. So these were to say, look, you can trust me, I'm giving you inside information. And also what that did was increase um, the idea 
um, among Earl Spencer and, and most likely we think Diana as well, that people in her staff were colluded with the press against her. So to essentially make her suspicious of other people and trust him, they were a fabrication. Now, Lord Dyson in the report found this was against the BBC's own policy of treating contributors fairly. He was also pretty damning about a BBC investigation at the time, which exonerated Martin Bashir. That was after similar allegations were made against him in 1996. So when newspapers had reported about these forged documents, they found that actually um, he hadn't done anything significantly wrong. Um, Prince William has responded to the report. Let's take a look. I would like to thank Lord Dyson and his team for the report. It is welcome that the BBC accepts Lord Dyson's findings in full, which are extremely concerning. That BBC employees lied and used fake documents to obtain the interview with my mother, made lurid and false claims about the royal family, which played on her fears and fueled paranoia, displayed woeful incompetence when investigating complaints and concerns about the programme, and were evasive in their reporting to the media and covered up what they knew from their internal investigation. It is my view that the deceitful way the interview was obtained substantially influenced what my mother said. The interview was a major contribution to making my parents' relationship worse and has since hurt countless others. It brings indescribable sadness to know that the BBC's failures contributed significantly to her fear paranoia and isolation that I remember from those final years with her. But what saddens me most is that if the BBC had properly investigated the complaints and concerns first raised in 1995, my mother would have known that she'd been deceived. She was failed not just by a rogue reporter, but by leaders at the BBC who looked the other way rather than asking the tough questions. Now, those were pretty strong words. Um, by Prince William, the future king, although if we've still got a monarchy by then, we'll talk about that later in the show. Um, and suggestions that Bashir's dishonesty led to Diana's paranoia, I think with that clip, were, were what most stood out. He's saying this contributed to, in part, the breakdown of, of my parents' marriage. I'm not sure quite if the timings work out there, but anyway, that's, that, that's his perspective on what happened. Ash should we care that Martin Bashir lied to get an interview with Princess Diana and that for 25 years the BBC failed to properly investigate it? Well, look, you can care or not care as much as you like with this one, but I do think it's politically significant because of the problems it presents for the BBC. Because Martin Bashir um, was investigated three times before the Lord Dyson report happened. And lots of doubt was cast on the methods by which he obtained the interview relatively quickly after that panorama first aired. And so it was looked into three times. The investigation was helmed by uh, Lord Hall, who at the time was the director of news, and he then became director general. And there was also a cover-up operation, which involved, you know, being evasive with the press, you know, sort of misleading them, saying that all these rumours were just the work of jealous colleagues in the industry and all those things we now know to be untrue. And what this hints at is what we know to be a systemic problem within the BBC, which is that when it looks at um, its stars coming under attack uh, for their integrity, the BBC would rather protect those stars than necessarily hold them accountable. And this has got unfortunate resonances, um, although it's, of course, a lot less severe. Um, the damage that was done, a lot less bad. But it does have unfortunate resonances with that look-the-other-way policy that surrounded Jimmy Savile. So that is a problem for the BBC. What else is a problem for the BBC is that it lets tabloids off the hook for some of the more egregious and aggressive ways in which they pursued Princess Diana, in which they pursue celebrities and anyone in the public eye uh, overall. So you've got this, you know, quite unfortunate element of the story, which is that what Martin Bashir did, which is have these fraudulent documents made so that he could show them to Diana's brother, Charles Spencer, and sort of get this kind of, you know, weigh in and earn her trust is that that's quite a tabloid technique. So it wouldn't necessarily be unusual uh, for a reporter 
who works at one of the red tops to operate in that way, except now you've got this moment of opportunism from those tabloids, the same ones, which absolutely hounded Diana, particularly in the later years of her life, being able to say, oh, look, it wasn't us. We would never do something like that. It's that naughty, naughty BBC. And by the way, that's why you should get rid of the license fee, right? It's quite a, it's quite a useful and a politically convenient narrative um, to, to, you know, bang the drum on at this time. And then you've got the third thing, which is what does this present for the royal family? Well, it's something of a lifeline because they've not had a great year when it comes to uh, the presentation of their family life. On the one hand, you do have a season of The Crown, which focused with laser, um, you know, with laser-like focus on the marriage of Charles and Diana, the fact that he was having an affair all that time, her isolation, her eating disorder, her struggles with mental health, and that breakdown of the marriage. And that is, of course, one of the most watched television shows in the world. So you had a renewed focus on Charles, who was, of course, a future king, and that relationship with Camilla and how it first started. So that wasn't great for them. You then also have Megxit, um, the break of Meghan and Harry from the royal family here in Britain in order to join a much more diverse but no less elite form of aristocracy in the United States, you know, the Oprahs and the Ellens and the Obamas and all of that. And what's really interesting to me is that on the same day, you have Prince William putting out this statement where he's saying um, that BBC interview was responsible for the breakdown of my parents' marriage. Uh, it contributed to the paranoia and the fear of my mother in her later years. You've got Harry on this new Apple TV series called The Me You Don't See, essentially undertaking a broadcast therapy session in which he talks about the aggressiveness of the paparazzi, the fact that his father failed to protect him sufficiently from the intrusions of the media, and also in very candid ways about his mother's death and the parallels that he sees between the circumstances in which his mother died and the way in which his wife was treated, not only by the British tabloids, but also by the institution of the royal family itself. So, being able to sort of turn around from that and go, no, 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 it's that naughty BBC um, is, is very useful for an embattled royal family, which is having to work quite hard to maintain its myth of being Britain's first family, the epitome of all that is moral, good and self-sacrificing in this country. So this is a story which has come at a bad time for a BBC and a good time for everyone else. Yeah, everyone else in the story, I suppose, is the key part of that that analysis, right? Not not every because for me, something that strengthens the royal family and weakens the BBC and strengthens the tabloids. I mean, that's kind of a depressing picture, isn't it? Let's go straight on to our next story, which we're going to do super super quickly. The British monarchy has had a tough couple of years when it comes to their standing with the general public. From the prince, whose friends of a paedophile, to the unnamed senior royal concerned about the skin tone of Harry and Meghan's baby, the royal family have shamed the nation and have done so at the taxpayer's expense. It might not be a surprise then that according to a new poll from YouGov, support for Britain to have an elected head of state has recently rocketed. Um, let's take a look at the poll results. Um, so you can see here it's a comparison between the percentage of people who supported an elected head of state in October 2019 and in May 2021. Now, among all voters, all people polled, 18% of people wanted an elected head of state in 2019 compared to 24% in 2021. Now, you might not think that's a huge increase, but among certain groups, the increase is pretty big. So among 18 to 24s um, in 2019, 19% of people wanted an elected head of state. That has gone right up to 41% in 2021. Now, that is actually higher than the number of people who would oppose such a move. 41% of people who are 18 to 24 um, back an elected head of state, 31% oppose the move. Among Labour voters, there has also been an increase in people supporting an elected head of state from 26% to 40%. Um, that's the positives if you're a Republican like me. The disappointment, um, which is probably not a surprise if you follow um, the news on this and public opinion on this, the public at large still 
back the royals. I don't know why, but they they still do. Let's get up um, the general public, um, although it is, it is moving in in the right direction. So among all Britons, as I said before, twenty four percent of people now want um, an elected head of state, but sixty one percent of people still think we should have the monarchy down slightly, but not very much. It's only among the 18 to 24s where there's been that real big difference. I told you those numbers already now, 41% of people want an elected head of state compared to 31% of people who want the monarchy. It's been a slight drop in support for the monarchy among 25 to 41 year olds. That's down to 53%, but still a pretty solid majority considering only 27% of people want an elected head of state. And once you get into the over 50s, those people just really love um, inherited privilege, I suppose. Not all of them, I say. The majority of over 50s do. So 50 to 64, 70% of people back the monarchy, 21% of people don't. And among the 65-year-olds, a whopping 81% of people back the monarchy. Only 13% of people want an elected head of state. That is up a couple of points since 2019. But, you know, it doesn't look like any time soon the older generations are going to be calling for for the the head of, of 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 the monarch to be chopped off i don't know if that's how we do it these days we can probably do it peacefully um if it does happen ash um a move among the young but among the rest of the population they're probably not going to be that worried yet one of the things i'm interested in is seeing how they handle the succession of charles to the throne because one he will be an old king all right. He's not coming to the throne in the prime of his youth. So some of the stories which get woven around older monarchs can often be very unflattering because they become an image of the nation um, in decline. And this is something which happened when Elizabeth I, for instance, was aging. There then became this very, you know, kind of macabre and maudlin mood in the culture because you had this, you know, older woman on the throne and she didn't have an heir. And you suddenly had this huge cultural shift towards being like, well, who are we? Are we this, you know, kind of um, decaying barren person as well? So I think that that's one of the things which is often quite vulnerable about the monarchy. The fact that it centers around an individual and that individual is symbolic of the body politic, it then means that if they are seen to deviate from the virtues and ideals of kingship or queenship, that the monarchy itself can be, you know, seen to be in a kind of crisis. So I think there's a certain vulnerability there. But ultimately, um, it is a robust and it is a powerful institution and it is bigger than the individual's who make up the royal family. It is a cartel. There are so many people involved in maintaining and hoarding all this wealth and all this power who are involved in manipulating the press just enough to manage uh, the kinds of scandals which the public always want to consume and in some ways bits of the royal houses want to feed in terms of, you know, kind of jabbing the one they don't like off the perch or putting somebody back in their place. But ultimately, it's a game by which everyone is meant to know the rules. So I think all those things are still quite powerful. What'll be interesting to me is that kind of generational shift, um, you know, that one which Harry and Meghan, even though they are no less elite, they are distinct um, from the norms which sort of govern the British aristocracy, is whether that critique of the monarchy, which comes from people who are former insiders, will have more and more traction amongst younger generations and erode that support for a constitutional monarch even further. Ash, um, thank you so much for rushing um, home so you could join me this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure as always. No, thanks for having me. I mean, I've got my asthma pump here. So just like, <gasps> like, um, but I made it. I didn't die. <laughs> it's good for you in the long run, you know. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.